It's always refreshing to see when incredibly successful entrepreneurs have a strong desire to make a difference in the world. Paul English, co-founder of Kayak, Lola, and Get Human, is a social entrepreneur. He wants to make an impact and is putting his knowledge, experience, and money where his mouth is. My name is Michael Gewertzman, and I'm the director of thought leadership at Ivy. At a recent Ivy Ideas Night in Boston, I spoke with Paul about his career path, his successes and the lessons that he learned along the way, and his charitable endeavors, including MLK Boston, along with the skills and leadership that he took with him into the nonprofit space. It's a story not only of business success, but harnessing that knowledge to spark significant change. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us. Let's start with some context. Share with us a little bit about your background. Were you always an entrepreneur? I know that you were into tech and data also. Was that the original plan? How did we get to where we are today? So I'm number six of seven. I have three brothers and three sisters. Grew up in West Roxbury. My dad was a pipe fitter and I would say an entrepreneur in many ways. My mom was a therapist and a social worker. I think growing up in a partially dysfunctional family, and what family is not dysfunctional, caused me to be really focused on teams and dynamics. And one of the things I brought with me to each one of my companies is trying to figure out how to make functional families and how to have teams work really well together. So I would say that the first thing I bring to entrepreneurship, I'm an engineer by training, is not my engineering skills, it's my forming team formation skills. Great. We'll, we'll get to those teams also. I want to talk about Kayak. I think Kayak is obviously the most known of your organization so far. So, so talk us through that. Where did the idea come from? And then what were some of the early challenges and wins that you experienced and, and the lessons from those? Yeah, so Kayak was really fun. I've started, five, I'm currently running a travel company called Lola, which does business travel. That's my fifth startup. Kayak was my fourth startup. Really fun 10 years of my life. I met my co-founder, Steve Hafner, in December 2003. He was just leaving Orbitz where he was a founder. And he basically realized that 70% of people who were using Orbitz back then would do a search on Orbitz, they'd find, let's say, the flight they want, they'd leave Orbitz and go to another website and book it just because there's a lot of benefit as a traveler if you book directly with an airline or with a hotel. And so his idea was, let's create a search engine that's just pure search. There's no way to purchase, but we'll search all the other sites. When you find what you want, you click through, and then you will leave Kayak go to aa.com or delta.com, and from there you'll be able to make the purchase. And that vision carried us for the first five years. We sort of morphed the company a little bit, somewhat in, but um, is very focused on that initial problem of becoming a search engine, not a store. So, so after its first four years, Kayak hit the billion search mark. Three years later, it hit another two billion. The following year, so year four, it took only 10 months to hit that, that one billion mark. What did this teach you about its growth, and what lessons can you share with us in building out online engagement? Yeah, the other billion number that Kayak will achieve this year is a billion in net revenue, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, and let me see, what did I learn about that? I think the most important skill that I honed while I was at Kayak was simply around how teams work well together. Um, how to recruit, how to lead teams, and also the worst part of a manager's job is how to fire people when things aren't working out well. Um, just always culling the team and making sure that the, the team that comes to work every day is super highly functional, likes working together and all that. And I would say we built a pretty magical team at Kayak. I think in my first 10 years at Kayak, 
from 2004 until I left in 2014, I think I only had a few people quit from the engineering team in 10 years. We fired a bunch of people over the years who ended up not working out, but um, it tended to be a place where people were pretty loyal. And many of the people that I hired in 2004 are still at Kayak 14 years later. So I'm proud of that, that we built a culture that people really enjoyed working together. I read that you have a you had a very specific methodology of delivering feedback to those teams. You're very you know, upfront and, and, and personal about that. How did that go over with people? Do you think that it, it worked well with them? Do you think that um, it did not work well with them? What, what, how did they respond to that? Yeah, I think it's the most difficult part of any manager's job is to give honest feedback to your staff because it's well, giving constructive feedback is difficult because you don't want to offend someone and people are many times easily offended. People don't always take feedback that well. But I think it's the best thing you can do as a manager is to be honest with people. And one of the things I have done that some people have written about, it's a little bit unique, is I do something called a five-word performance review, where I literally will take, I don't know, whatever piece of paper is sitting on my desk, a phone bill or anything, and every now and then I will say to you, let's go out to lunch, and I will give you some feedback. And I would have written on the back of this piece of paper five words, and two or three with a plus, and two or three with a minus. And basically, what I will say is, if five years from now, a friend of mine says, what's it like to work with Michael, whatever I would tell them, I'm going to tell you directly. So, and I've put the piece of paper in front of you, and there's no, there's no HR recording of this conversation, but I just want to be totally honest, separate from any HR eval form, this is literally what I've thought about working with you. This is the things I love about working with you, and here are things about working with you that's challenging. And some people are taken aback when I'm as direct as I tend to be when I do these sessions, but I think they have valued it, that they've said that it's the most honest feedback they've gotten. And I don't always literally do it with like five words and we'll go out to lunch or whatever, but I try to model myself off some managers that have been really helpful to me in my own career. And a lot of that is hearing what's working, what's not working. And when you learn as an employee, what about you doesn't work that well, you can either learn how to change those skills or build teams around you that can mitigate the things that you make corrections where things that you don't do that well on your own. It's an interesting approach. So then Kayak was was purchased by Priceline for, anyone want to guess? Anyone want to throw out a number? $1.8 billion, correct, was purchased. So was acquisition always the plan and when when is the right time to sell? So I've created five companies. I've sold three of them. There's two that are ongoing. Get Human is a company I created in 2006, the venture back company one of my friends is running right now, and then Lola is number five. I think although ultimately your investors want you to sell the company, take it public and or sell it, as an entrepreneur, I think it'd be a mistake to think about exit at first. I think the most important thing is, can you build the best team that's ever been built? And can you create a place that is the best jobs of people's careers? Can you create a place that people are really excited to come to work? And to me, I knew my job was working well at Kayak when we created that buzz in the office and that kind of electric energy. And I think selling a company before you've created that perfect team would be a mistake. You will have let people down. If you're gonna promise people you'll give them the best job of their career, you have to do that. And then of course, getting scale on your own and getting traction to prove that the business model works, the products work, so to me, it's all about create the perfect team and then scale the business. And then at some point, when you've done those two things, if there are larger companies that will pay a premium for acquiring you, you know, I'm open to selling. Yeah. So what is that perfect team? We're talking about the perfect team a lot. What are the qualities that you're looking for when you're starting to build that really strong foundation? 
I mean, for me, it's you want people that are themselves entrepreneurs. You want everyone in the company to act as an entrepreneur, to not follow rules, but to instead, when they see something that's fucked up, they do something about it. Rather than They never say, that's not my job. They always try to fix any problems that they see around them. And you want a team that's honest with each other about coaching and helping each other out. And you want a team that just loves working with each other. So many times as an investor, I've invested in 40 companies, and my investment thesis is 70% of my decision is the team. Is it a team that's been successful before? Can they recruit? Can they retain talent? Um, are they aggressive? Are they ethical? Just all the things that I really care about. And many times when you meet these founders or startups that I've considered investing in, you can tell if they have the mojo or not. And when they have the mojo, it's a company that not only can attract employees, but they can attract investors, they can attract customers. And so you kind of want that magic. The other two criteria for me is 20% is what problem are they trying to solve? And then 10% is tell me what you're actually building. And I'm exaggerating a little bit. Maybe I care more than 10%, but I'm trying to make a point that what you really should care about as an investor is can these founders build a magical team? That's really what it's all about. You've written something that kind of echoes a previous uh, thought leader of Ivy's uh, in Boston, actually, Karen Kaplan from Hill Holiday, if anyone was there. Karen Kaplan and, and you have written, uh, everyone should have their own personal board of directors. Can you speak to this? What do you mean when you say that? And what's your relationship with your personal board of directors? Yeah, my personal board are people who have attributes for themselves that I aspire to have for myself in my life. I recently, uh, last week, we had a bunch of high school seniors who were in visiting Lola for the day. And these were students that are first time college bound in their family. So they don't have role models in their family for people who've been to college before. They were asking me for advice about what they should do their first year in college. And my first advice I gave them was, think about the person you want to be, you know, what you want for yourself as a character and values, and find people at college who have that. And if you want to be an athlete, hang out with athletes. If you want to be a great nonprofit leader, hang out with people who do nonprofit work. Just be intentional about where you spend your time. And so for me, for my personal board, I have people that have been successful in different leadership positions. They're ethical. They're successful. They care about family. I mean, they care about things that I care about. And it's nice that when you have this board that you can bring any problem to them. What role has mentorship played in your career, both both taking on mentees, we'll say, yeah. uh, and also being mentored? I know it's very important to you. Yeah, mentors to me, a lot of times a mentor is someone who has more years of experience than you, so you want someone who's been there and done it before. They might have 10 or 20 years more experience than you, but not necessarily. I've had mentors that are my age as well. When I was 30, I had someone who was 30 years old, but it was a just an incredible, incredible leader. And um, to me, the selection of who you want as your mentor is about find someone who has the attributes that you want for yourself, and then who has some experience. And you need to have a really honest relationship with your mentor where you shouldn't be spinning and posturing and positioning, but you should just tell them, these are my fears, here's things I'm, I suck at, here's where I'm not doing well, and here's where I want to get better. And I think that if you find someone who represents the values you aspire to have for yourself and have some experience, Having those honest discussions can be the most fruitful in terms of directing your own career. I spoke before when I was introducing you about everything that you're involved in. You're, you're so well-rounded and you're doing certainly more than one thing at a time right now. You're sitting on like four board of directors right now. You, you're still involved in two or three of the, the organizations you founded. 
What is a day in the life and, and how do you manage your time? What time management skills and, and tips do you have for everyone here? Yeah, so I have, um, I'm running Lola as my day job. I'm on six nonprofit boards. Three of them are nonprofits that I've started myself. And so I'm the lead um, director running three nonprofits. My time management techniques are very disciplined. So I color code my calendar. I use Google Calendar. And all my appointments have one of four colors. And I look at my calendar two weeks out every Monday and Friday, and I make sure there's a good balance. So uh, blue are meetings relating to Lola, and those are Monday, Friday, 10 to 5. And I also leave lunch open every day for sort of spontaneous, serendipitous things that happen in the office. Yellow is nonprofit time. I tend to do 8 to 10 hours of scheduled meeting with nonprofit. I do other work in addition to my scheduled meetings. Green is self-improvement, so I go to the gym three times a week. I go to meditation class once a week. Anything sort of self-improvement related is green in my calendar, and I make sure that I have probably five or six hours of that a week. And then purple is everything else, just hanging out with friends and family. And for me, being able to look at my calendar two weeks ahead and seeing that balance makes my life feel centered. And if I end up having too much of one and not another, I just tweak it until I get that balance that I want. And maybe, you know, for some of you, maybe it's not four colors, maybe you want three, or maybe you want five. You probably don't want too much more than four. And maybe you, instead of eight hours a week nonprofit, you might only want to do two hours a week. But I would advise you all to be mindful of your calendar and think about where do you want to spend your time and to just be proactive about managing it. It's a great tip. I also love leaving that, that little window for the, the serendipitous occurrences yeah. also. That's something we should all uh, start to do. As a founder, as an entrepreneur, I think it comes, it's like a roller coaster, right? There's those emotional highs and lows. There's probably so many close calls that come and go. And so... How do, you, how do you manage the everyday stress, um, the, the mental health, frankly, of being an entrepreneur and, and a business owner? We've had speakers here talking about being mindful in practice and, and what it's like. So what, what is it like for you and how do you, is it, is it the meditation that you spoke about? Are there other tips that you have to stay balanced on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I do have a meditation practice I've been doing for about 10 years. In my 20s, I was someone who had a lot of anger and I generally, it's extremely difficult to get me angry anymore and if I do get angry I it dissipates really quickly and I think that is something that I learned through meditation but in terms of the ups and downs of a startup and there are ups and downs there are good days and there are terrible days to me it's all about having having that one technically having a board that's your actual board who has fiscal accountability for your company and hopefully if you've been a good entrepreneur you can select a board that not only has um, experience and helping manage a company through growth, but it's people that you trust and like and enjoy. And your relationship will be different with each board member. Some will be more personal than others. But in addition to having your professional board, I'm, I am a huge fan of having the personal board. And when things aren't going well, ideally you have a co-founder who has an equal stake in the business and you can kind of bounce off each other. And when one of you is having a really bad day, hope the other one's day is not as bad, or if it is bad, you can go out drinking together. You know, having that co-founder that you can balance ideas off and talk about good days and bad days is really important. And if for some reason you don't have a co-founder, one, you get that person. But in the meantime, having your personal board, someone that people have those things you aspire to have and develop yourself, and being totally honest with them. And I tend to, I like really like honesty in all my relationships. And I think the relationships that are the most honest are the ones where you grow the fastest. How are you prioritizing it all? We spoke about time management. What about the prioritization 
on a day-to-day -day basis when you have so much going on? Are there times where you have to sacrifice certain things for others, and how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's difficult for me, so I'm a little bit of a public person. I've been known for some of my nonprofit work and my for-profit work, and I get a lot of media requests, and it's difficult to me. I get, I don't know, I'm just trying to think. I probably had 10 meeting requests today, and I can't, in addition, I mean, I had a full calendar today, and then in addition to that, I probably had 10 people, and some of them are strangers I've met before, other of them are friends of friends, and it's difficult to say no, but you just have to say no if you have more requests than you have hours in the day. Um, that's hard. I try to be intentional about what my top three priorities are at the company, and I try to communicate those to my team so they know what I'm working on and what I'm worried about, and I think... Um, they say that uh, when you think about disagreement at work, like think about the last fight you had with your co-founder or someone at work, a lot of times when you have a lot of angst with someone at work, it's simply because you're looking at the same problem but with different data or with different priorities or different desired outcomes. And if you're simply transparent to the person you have a disagreement with and you say, this is really how I'm wired and this is what's important to me personally, um, and here's what I'm being held accountable for. If you understand the other person and you're looking at a problem with the same lens, you can come to resolution pretty quickly. And so to me, a lot of that is being really clear with priorities. And if everyone in your management team, they won't all have the exact same priorities, but if they're transparent with each other about this is what's important to me for my career development, um, for my business function, I think that helps make arguments more productive. Absolutely. So you spoke about the nonprofits, and I really want to get to that. So let's just start with, with an easy one. What, there's a few of them, right? So what are the nonprofits that you're engaged in right now? Let's just go broad right now, and we'll yeah. dive into a few of them. So I have six that I'm on the board of. I'll do them kind of oldest to newest. So Partners in Health with Dr. Paul Farmer. We do work in 10 countries building medical clinics and now schools, uh, medical schools uh, in Rwanda and in Haiti. I've been on the board there. I first went to Haiti in 2003, so I've been working with those guys for a long time. I'm on the board of Village Health Works, which is building a health system in Burundi, um, in Africa. I'm on the board of Humanity Rises, which does refugee relief. We were doing work last year in Greece, and now we're doing work in Bangladesh, the Rohingya minority um, that have been persecuted with these awful atrocities in Myanmar and have uh, fled to Bangladesh, about 700,000. I'm actually going to go in to visit the camps in October. Then I have um, summits education. In Haiti, I run a school system. I have 40 schools, 350 teachers, and 10,000 students. I also run an organization, an event in Boston called the Winter Walk, which is all about trying to form connections between homeless people and people with homes. And we do an annual event uh, in Copley. We start in Copley Square and we do a walk around the common. I have homeless and formerly homeless people give talks about what it's like to be homeless and what it's like to be homeless in the street and everyone walks by you and no one looks at you and no one acknowledges you. And um, do that one. And then the last one is a project I started last September. It's called MLK Boston. And what I'm doing is trying to figure out how to memorialize MLK's time when he lived in Boston, and what would he be working on today if he were still alive, and what should we all be working on today if we want to take his words seriously. And not all Bostonians know this, but uh, Martin Luther King, when he 
came to Boston to go to school at Boston University, where he got his PhD. He met Coretta here. She was a student at New England Conservatory of Music. They fell in love in Boston. They got married here. They lived in the South End. He preached at the 12th Baptist Church. A lot of his foundational work was done while he was at BU. Um, and he, a lot of his thinking was shaped by mentors of his while he was at Boston University. So what we want to do is memorialize their time together in the city and again think about what we should be working on. So we're building a um, world-class memorial in the Boston Common. We're opening an MLK Leadership Center in Roxbury. We're going to train activists how to make change in the city. We're doing a uh, $1 million endowment for 12th Baptist Church where he used to preach. We're uh, doing a documentary about their time together in Boston. And then last, we're throwing a huge party on, and actually, we haven't announced this yet, so I'm kind of announcing it to you all. Getting a scoop. Yeah, yeah a scoop. giving you guys a scoop here. But um, Tuesday, October 16th, at the MFA, 500 people. My headliner is Earth, Wind, and Fire. My VIP reception is Esperanza Spaulding. How many people know Esperanza? Hopefully some people know Esperanza. She's my favorite musician. She's unbelievable. So she's going to do our VIP reception. We're lining up some renowned civil rights leaders and contemporaries of MLK. And we're going to throw a huge party and raise a bunch of money for all of this programming for the memorial. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> he's, a, he's a slacker, huh? A real slacker. <laughs> so you're passionate about a lot of things. How do you identify which issues you want to tackle? And then when you do, what are the first steps you take? And then I want to dive more into MLK Boston. But... Yeah, so I um Definitely, you could put the ADD label on me, um, as well as a bunch of other labels. See how much time we have here tonight. Um, and I definitely have a shiny new objects problem, where I'm interested in so many things that I get interested in new projects all the time. I get interested in new people all the time. And when I meet someone who has a skill that I don't have, and they have travel that I haven't experienced, and I have something that I want to learn about. I tend to get really like hyper-focused on learning as much as I can, as fast as I can from a lot of people. The thing that caused me to say, okay, I'm willing to spend eight hours a week on this one thing, is I'll start down the path, and if I can get other people excited about this new project as well, and get other people to start volunteering their time to work with me for free, you know, without getting paid, but they'll put hours in a week on a problem, then to me, I've identified that, all right, I'm now working on a problem that a lot of people are interested in, so let's just keep pushing it further. It, a lot of times if you have an idea and you can't get people to work on it with you for free, it means your idea is not compelling enough. What have you found? Or, you, or you're not compelling enough. <laughs> yeah. I feel like he was just saying that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you're not compelling enough. Sorry. What, no, I'm kidding. Um, what, what have you found from leadership to the non-for-profit space has been the most transferable skill and the most valuable skill that you've taken with you? I would say maybe storytelling. Um, some of my best, I mean the best storytellers I know are nonprofit leaders, more than for-profit leaders. And um, like one of my friends I was talking this morning, Lila Jana, I don't know if any of you know her, she wrote a book recently called Give Work. It's all about not giving money to Haiti, but instead creating jobs in Haiti and Kenya and Uganda and Rwanda and many countries where she works. And she's a masterful storyteller. 
And when you have someone that's a good storyteller, whether it's for a for-profit or a non-profit, they can tend to line up resources because we all like stories and people get motivated by good stories. And I think that to be an entrepreneur, you need to learn to become a good storyteller and you need to compel people to want to work with you because you've told, you've described a world that they want to live in or you've described uh, a product that they would like to have. So I would start with storytelling. And it's a craft and learn to get good at it. Absolutely. So to that point, getting people on board, MLK Boston, we already spoke about everything that you're trying to accomplish. You consider that, you call it an open source project. So what is that? You, you've held 14 different public meetings to, to brainstorm with people, yeah. get the community involved. You have a massive fundraiser um, going along. So how has the open source model helped you? What have you learned from it? And, and to that point also, how can the Ivy community support you and what MLK Boston is doing as well? Yeah, so by open source, what I mean is rather than me, you know, white entrepreneur, grew up, lived in Boston, went to college here, rather than me kind of dictating what I think MLK's words mean in Boston in 2018, I should try to find other people in all the neighborhoods of Boston who think about what do they think his words meant and what do they want us to work on if we were to take forward the mantle. Uh, of Dr. King, and we've had, you're right, 14 public meetings so far. I think I've been to 200 meetings around MLK for this project, but, and I've been doing a lot of reading. I first read MLK when I was 12, so I've always been moved by his words, and he does describe a world that I want to live in. I've always been very inspired by him. Um, but we're trying to get input from as many neighborhoods in Boston about what other people think we should be working on today around race issues, um, economic disparity, housing, education, healthcare, many of the issues that he fought for and wrote about. We have still a lot of these issues that are uh, plaguing us in Boston, and I want to get input from as many people as possible to say, how do we prioritize? How do we resource? If we're going to be training activists, what are all the things we need to do to give them tools? How do we select with them what problems to work on? How do we decide to fund? How many activists should we fund a year? Should it be a small number like two or three, or should it be 20? How much funding can we raise to give to them to make change in the city? And so these meetings have helped inform it. And the original project was just to build a memorial. But through these meetings, we widened the scope, and now we're taking on a lot more. What do you think is the most important lesson taught from, we could say the whole, the King family, that's most applicable to today? I would say it's um, change starts with love, and you should love um, people who have different opinions than you. And if, um, I mean, the way to deal with hate is with love. And if you learn to understand other people and listen to them, through that honest dialogue, change can come. It's a good point, um, especially today. How? I think it's easier said than done, right? There's, there's one side and there's the other side, and it's, it's, it's like that right now. How can we have these, these really important conversations without, you know, grandma crying at the Christmas table and running away? You know, like, how do we have the, this dialogue yeah. that doesn't offend? Or... I'll, I'll tell you my personal challenge. I'm single. I went out on a date the other night, and everything was going great, really interested this person, and then I found out she was a Trump supporter. 
And, and there you go. Right. Yeah. So, so, how does, so how does that work? How does that? Work? How do we have these conversations? You know. Like, yeah. It's 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 about we. And will there be a second date? And will there be a second date? <laughs> the follow-up interview to compost. Questions. Um, I have a few more questions. I want everyone to start thinking about yours. We'll ask a couple more, and then I'm going to open it up to the floor. Um, if you can go back to any point throughout your career to give yourself one piece of advice, hop in this magical time machine, what period of time would you go to in your career and, and what would you tell yourself? Um, Besides not to go on two, a date with Trump before. Yeah, <laughs> two, two things come to mind. Yeah. Uh, so I'm bipolar and I would say I'm well managed. I would have told myself at age 25 to get treatment sooner rather than struggling through it for years without getting help. The other thing I would have done is to say, um, who was it that said, people are not going to remember your words, they'll remember how you made them feel? Who said that? My Angelou. I love that saying so much. And I wish someone told me that when I was 25 because when I was 25, I was a programmer. I was managing a team of 17 programmers that reported directly to me and I was coding. And I was pretty intense back then. And I probably took a lot of shortcuts that I shouldn't have. And I got frustrated and angry at work a lot. And I wish someone had told me the most important thing is making people feel valued and listened to. And I don't think anyone really told that to me in my 20s. And I wish I knew that then. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the tech data guy in you throughout your career, is there is there a current technology or emerging technology that you're really excited about that we should be looking out for? I mean, it's the stuff that the press covers pretty extensively. I'm excited about self-driving cars. As an engineer, I'm astonished that it works. And if you look at the videos, uh, I think Tesla has released a video of a car driving down a street and taking, stopping at stoplights and taking turns. And it's doing image recognition in real time, like that's a human, that's a car, you know, that's a dog. And the car is driving at 30 miles an hour, and all these objects will be identified in real time. It's shocking to me that that works. It's shocking how well Google Photos works. You can go, I use the Google Photos app on my phone, and you can type red dress, and any picture you've ever taken that there's someone in a red dress will be shown instantly. How do they do that? It's amazing. So I'm really interested in language, real-time translation is also a machine learning application, image recognition, machine learning. I was really impressed with the Google I.O. conference this year. I don't know if people have a chance to see it. If you don't watch the whole conference every year, make sure you watch Sundar Pichai's presentation. He's the CEO of Google. And he talks about the highlights of what are the, like in 20 minutes, what's the most impressive things Google has done in the last year. And he's a great storyteller. I don't know. Um, I guess if I had to pick one thing, I would say it's machine learning, that the algorithms are getting really smart really quick. And the algorithms now are writing software that humans don't understand. And it's a little scary. We're all direct this stuff. I think a lot of positive change is going to happen. Yeah. We live in the future. It's crazy. Yeah. Last question, then it's your turn. I like asking all of our, our speakers this. What are two or three pieces of content we should all be listening to, reading, whether it's a book, a podcast, a show? What are, what are recommendations you have for all of us to just dive into? I have a long car ride back to New York this evening. What should I be listening to? All right, cool. Probably not reading while I'm driving, but, but <laughs> to, to make a note of. One of my favorite podcasts 
It's going to sound really boring, but it's called HBS After Hours. One of my favorite directors of my company, Lola, is Young Mi Moon. She's a professor at Harvard Business School. And she and two of her colleagues host a podcast called HBS After Hours. And they basically sort of free associate on different topics. And the three of them are incredibly well-read and brilliant and hysterical. And I really enjoy that one. It's refreshing, and I get to learn a lot by listening to the different topics they talk about. I like Reed Hoffman's podcast, Masters of Scale. Reed did a shout-out to me in his first episode, which is kind of fun. He talked about me doing customer service at Kayak, which I had a particular way of doing that. So I like podcasts about stories. I like The Moth. I like Modern Love. There's a new one called Committed, which I like. I'll tell you a really kind of goofy, dumb superficial podcast I listen to sometimes. Yeah. It's called Awesome Etiquette. It's by the grandchildren of Emily Post. It's okay. really, really funny about how you should behave in certain uh, situations. Love it. Yeah, Love it. it's kind of hilarious. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.